1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Mentor. I've got a very special guest for our last podcast for the year of 2017. He's a chef, a restaurant owner, media personality, and a bloody good guy. His name's Gary Meegan. You'll know him from MasterChef and many other TV shows as well. He's a big personality, so you are probably following him on Facebook and all sorts of places. We're going to talk about his own journey working in restaurants, about his skill base, how he runs his businesses... And also that old chestnut, that important one, building yourself as a brand. So let's get into it.
0: Gary Megan, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you. I love the intro as well. Thanks, mate. I sound good when you say it. <laughs> <laughs> you are good, mate. Don't worry about that. I'm actually privileged to have someone like
1: you on the show. Uh, uh, by the way, how is your podcast going? A plate to call home. How's that going, mate? Yeah, I'm,
0: I'm really loving it. I think, as opposed to what you see on television when I'm on MasterChef, uh, which is all kind of, you know, big TV, big intros, you know, three minute grabs. Uh, this is the, as you know, they are nice, long, you know, Interesting conversations, and you can follow any trail. And with foodies, I mean, we're unstoppable. The challenge we have is always keeping them to 45 minutes or so. I mean, Jock Sonfrillo, you talk about a, a crazy guy, he's out of South Australia, he's got a restaurant called Arana, but he started the Arana Foundation. I was just, I could have talked to the guy for hours, just fascinating stuff. Do, do you really. find like
1: I find this I, I find I learn about myself by talking to other people. I mean, I, I they sort of hit little nerves as I'm going through it, and I it sure. allows me to pursue it. I mean, you find finding that. Much about yourself by having talking by
0: having spoken to other people about particularly oh, sure. your own industry. Oh, without a doubt, and I think you know shared information, shared values. Um, you know, it certainly inspires me. I mean, every time I meet somebody who's a bit of a trailblazer, and there's very few people. I don't even consider myself a trailblazer. There's creators, there's inventors, there's trailblazers. Uh, I've always considered myself much of a, a technician, a craftsman. That's what I really enjoy. So when you meet somebody who genuinely is out there doing. Amazing things, you know, whether they're on the land and producing something, or whether they're doing creative stuff in the restaurant space. It's always uh, very inspiring, and I love that. Do you, nice yeah, to talk do, to do, like do
1: you, Gary. Do you have like, uh, you know, when you're sort of choosing your guests to come onto your podcast, um, are you um, sort of just chasing big names, or you're sort of going no. to the grassroots and sort of really digging in and you know, find out who's doing what? Like, as you said, being creative, like who's actually yeah. growing new form of potatoes and putting them on yeah. a plate.
0: It's trying to find people that are experts in different fields um, and are doing exciting things in whatever they're doing. I mean, we spoke to a a young lady who started uh, Madeline's Eggs, uh, which is out in Mount Macedon, and she started uh, as a little business project when she was at school, you know, encouraged by her parents who had a farm. Um, and she got a few chooks and then, you know, by the time she was 16, I think she did a, a GoFundMe page, raised enough money to buy an egg sorter. And I mean, you know, just absolutely entrepreneurial young lady who's now 24 or 23, got a young child and has this most amazing biodynamic uh, chook farm uh, distributing eggs. And you just go, my goodness, like amazing. You know, so now you know where I buy my eggs, <laughs>
1: mate. Well, because it's funny you should say that. It's, it's, it's interesting because you know, like one of the big things going on now is craft beer. I mean, it's just taken yeah. mental. And uh, mm. I've got a couple of mates who got, uh, who, who've got some of these. Like one of mine's got Stone, Stone, or part of a Stone of Wood. Another one's yeah. owns part of Balta. And all of a sudden, you know, as a consumable, um, as a food consumable, yeah. beer. Um, it's become cool, trendy, and lots of money's been made by these people because all of a sudden the big guys uh, want to come yeah. and buy all these brands everywhere. And I was—you just mentioned eggs. Um, do you ever sit down back and think to yourself, oh, "Geez, I wonder what the next thing is"? Because I was thinking myself only the other day because <laughs> I've got a farm, okay, and I would like your What can views, you grow? <laughs> well, You're correct, and I, and I would like your uh, uh, your view on it. Like, wow. I got a farm, and I two, uh, ten years ago I put a five hundred olive trees in. And uh, it's up near Byron Bay. And no one grows mm. olives up there because the temperature is not yeah. really right. It's better off in South Australia. But anyway, I I got, my first crop. I got a ton of olives and I pressed some for oil and I you know, bottled the rest. And I just gave them to friends. And <laughs> one of my mates is Guy Ambrahimi. And you probably mm. know Guy. And yeah. uh, he lives around the corner. And I said, mate, try this olive oil. And he said to me, mate, can you give me that? I'll put it in my restaurant. Now, he's just being nice. But I got a little bit excited. And like you said, I got inspired by that. and so. But unfortunately, I didn't get a crop of olives this year. Because you, know, yeah. you obviously don't get them every year. But then I put a beehive
0: in my property. Oh! And you didn't put a flow hive in. Yes, I cars, did. did you? Yes, I did. We, we we actually had him on my podcast. Oh, he's fantastic. Brilliant uh, guy. He's up in Byron. Correct. He's up
1: in Byron way. So yeah. I went and bought one of these uh, flow hives, and they sent the guy Good down. And they put it all together, and I got the the English bees, not the not the not not. It's not an yeah. honey, and. Um, Apparently get ninety litres of you know honey a year out of one beehive, and anyway I'm, so my property i've got grow lots of different things like f- plants and stuff like that. and I got my first lot of honey I've got eight jars, big jars of honey, a liter of jar mm. eight liter one liter of jars, and I was tasting it, and I thought, money oh, this tastes fantastic, I don't know if I am convincing good, myself, but and I thought to myself, I wonder whether one of the next things is going to be like, uh, you know, boutique honey
0: or bo- yeah. like, you know, boutique olives. Yeah. What do you reckon? Mate, if I, could, if I could pick them, I'd be invested in them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. I, think, oh, I think most people think, oh God, it's the next thing and how long it will last. Certainly beer's been an interesting one because if I rewind the clock to say when I opened my first restaurant, which was in 2000, the big breweries were still dominating everything and it was almost the death knoll for artisans and producers and actually it's flipped completely the other way in the last 10 years particularly probably 5 is accelerated into what we've got and it is fascinating i don't think anybody picked that but if you look at how many trends have come and gone you know whether it was emu farms crocodile farms you know brilliant ways of relieving money from wealthy uh, lawyers, accountants, and dentists. Love it. I think, it. you know, uh, truffles, although truffles actually now in South Australia, uh, South Australia, Tasmania, New South Wales, particularly Western Australia around Manjimup, are uh, making good money. But it's that's taken 20 years, you know, like it's a long time. Olive oil has so, too. Olive oil is another big one. And it's, you know what it is? It's educating the market. And I think the reemergence of artisans in Dining in uh, product, cheese, you know, honey, everything that you could think of uh, is really about an education uh, for the public. And I think now more than any time uh, that I can remember, people want something that's different, unique, uh, special, relatable, uh, local. Um, and that's the key. So whether or not m- lots of people are making money, I mean, you can have a hobby farm and, and have olive oil on it, but are you going to keep compete with Cobram that are making, yeah. you know, uh, and making great olive oil, but geared up for it and 10,000 hectares of, of land up in, you know. Mildura. Well, he's Oakley's.
1: That's Oakley family, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they they usually nail everything. Because yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess, but someone like you must be sort of sitting around. You just said you don't do it, but I mean, you you, you know, you've got your finger on the pulse. And you know what um,
0: customers of restaurants and cafes and – that you know what's on trend. It's got to be exciting. I mean, I've just come back from India. I spent three weeks in India uh, filming a a little TV series just for the Indian market. And um, I came across ingredients I'd never seen before. So, you know when you buy dried split peas, dal, you know, or sorghum, which we're a big producer of here in Australia, or chickpeas. We've all seen dried chickpeas. I saw all these – and we're a big producer here in Australia too – I saw them all fresh. I'd never seen green chickpeas before. I'd never seen green sorghum, which is called ponk or jawa over in India. Not a great name. Ponk. 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 Like is, smells or something. Ponk. punk's a hard one to market. Easy to market in India because they get it. But in, in Australia, you'd come up green sorghum, sounds fine, but green millet might be better. Who knows? If it's a new superfood, why not do it? So I've, I've been making a couple of phone calls because I said, I'd love to just get hold of this stuff. Because as soon as restaurants, and it'd have a very short season, but as soon as restaurants got a hold of it, they'd pay a premium for it. But I don't think our. our Chickpea farmers are geared up to supplying fresh product off the field. They're geared for drying and exporting um, back out to the Middle East, et cetera. So it would be interesting to see whether my conversations over the next you know, month or two will trigger a couple of farmers going, hang on a minute, I reckon I could get fresh dal, fresh sorghum, fresh uh, chickpeas into the Australian market.
1: You know, it's interesting you said something earlier on, which has sort of flicked a switch on me. You said to me, who would have known 10 years ago... That five years from now, that yeah. um, beer or you know these boutique beers would take off because the big guys, as you say, used to crush all the small boutique yeah. guys. I mean, in fact, I had a beer company and I used to uh, brew the Byron, Byron Byron Bay beer. So we, right. saw, and yeah. you're right, we end up selling the business off because we couldn't make any money, which yeah. we had kept it because today would be a, would be a smash. Oh, but you'd be the biggest one. Now, <laughs> what I want to say to you is exactly this: Who would have thought fifteen years ago or ten years ago that chefs? Would be able to live yeah. and make a good living, a good business off their chef brand. Yeah, so the Gary Meegan brand, all of them. Because mm-hmm. chefs traditionally ran restaurants and restaurants are hard businesses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard. And they were, were always successful businesses, always successful restaurants. But I think. Um, I'm like, not chefs. I, not, but not chefs. Yes. No, there, there's been a few in the past. I mean, the first TV chefs, uh, rewinding back to the late 60s with Robert Carrier. Most people wouldn't have a clue who he is. Or um, Floyd, uh, Keith Floyd out of the UK. So really random. And Keith Floyd was a bit random himself. You know, he used to drink wine on on camera and get himself a little drunk. And, you know, he was a bit crazy. But... Um, I think, you know, why is it? I mean, I've got old school friends that, you know, when I became a chef, when they weren't old school friends, they were just friends and we were 17. They go, what on earth? Why are you becoming a chef? My dad was an engineer. You know, I, I geared all my subjects at school to be, be an engineer myself or an architect you know i did chemistry and physics technical drawing and then i just i just my granddad was a chef and i looked at him and went he he loves life he loved life always happy engaged social uh, always making things and my dad actually said to me you know what i don't think you're going to be a good engineer you haven't got the patience for it why what about maybe looking at what your granddad does and my friends thought i was mad because i think out of my year at school no one became a chef out of the following three years of school, probably two became chefs. Um, and so they just thought I was some guy working in a pub cooking, I don't know, scampi in a basket. And why where did you? I was well, I think because I'd, I'd seen a little window, you know, through my granddad of how delicious the whole <laughs> experience and industry was. I mean, yeah, it's hard work, but when you're a young man, I think a lot of it's dignity of labor labor and fear of failure. And I just worked hard to learn a trade. I mean, in my first years in London, I remember that first year I started, I'd, I think my dad kind of coaxing me, coaching me um, and You know, willing me to survive because I was working fourteen hours a day. I mean, I worked my fingers to the bone. Um, So it was really hard and a very different environment, very aggressive. You know, very uh, no prisoners, master servant. Yeah, really. I mean, we were in the. I mean, I was at the Connaught Hotel, which at the star at the beginning was a two Michelin star, then a one mission star restaurant. And and that was down in the dungeons. The kitchens were, you know, we didn't have a human resources department back then. That was the chef. There were well, no humans, <laughs> just chefs and you know, cooks and we, we I just remember we had a hatch where we used to go and pick our wages up from. You know, that's as human resources as we got. So, yeah, it was pretty nasty. So but it wasn't set terrible up. You, did, you didn't work it out day one. You didn't sort of say, no. oh, I want no, to no, become
1: no. blah, blah and master chef.
0: No, I had a vague idea that maybe that I would travel the world because I knew my grandfather had, you know, way back in, you know, the, the 50s and 60s, you know, worked in America and set up training college in the Seychelles, did all sorts of interesting things. Actually contributed to a, a, a cooking book by Cesarani and Kinton because he was at Ealing College. So he, he, he had his fingers in lots of pies. He had a restaurant catering business, bits and pieces. And so he did really well you know and so i th- i thought at the time that possibly i could do really well but certainly not in a public space not in a in a on television that would have never have crossed my mind was it at entrepreneurial certain- were you entrepreneurial or were you looking for a trade were you a, a guy saying oh no, no 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 i was i was looking for a I was looking to do something with my hands. And I think, you know, years later, probably, you know, three years after opening Phoenix, which was, you know, we opened that in 2000, quite a big restaurant too. I read the E-Myth by Michael Gerber and went, oh shit, that's me. You know, I'm a tradesperson who just wanted to work for themselves and had an entrepreneurial moment and then went, oh my God, I've bitten off more than I can chew. So now I was, I was, and I think probably in a good way, just focused on being really good at what I... I was which was a chef learning my trade you know working you know in the butchery department in pastry learning to make sauces you know and back then the average kind of worker what we call a chef de party which is in French just means a manager of a part so they would look after a part of the kitchen like mm-hmm. the sauce and they would have demi chefs and commis chefs which are the minions that would work underneath them so each section might have 10 or 6 or 8 you know, of these guys like me working under a boss who was part of a, this hierarchy in the kitchen, and I was just trying to master the recipes, and, and they would have been on average about 25, 26 years old, which is unheard of now. You know, by the time you're 26 now, if you're not getting somewhere and you're a manager of a kitchen, then, you know, you're almost seen to be a failure where, you know, in other uh, societies, you travel through Southeast Asia and you've got street sellers that have been making one thing for their whole life, and sometimes it's intergenerational, you know, Father passes it to son. And they're the true experts. They're the true craftsmen. Yeah,
1: because, you know, like, I mean, do
0: you, think, do you think it's been lost then? I mean, is, <clears> I mean <throat> I, relatively speaking, is it because everybody
1: wants to become Gary Meekin? I mean, because I, I would think that's driving a lot of the new oh, sure.
0: Yeah, sure. I think, I think no, I, I'm not a – you know what's interesting is in the industry these days, I, I, there's still some stalwarts around that, you know, I'll bemoan the days of, you know, when I was younger, it wasn't like this. And I say to it, look, I mean, I'm 50 now, so when I was, what, 18 and a shit kicker in London working my butt off, I remember the chefs at the time and I was sitting there in the staff canteen, which wasn't even a canteen, it was a bench and eating something, listening to them going, all the kids today are rubbish. You know, they're, they're not working hard enough, they don't have the same attitude. That was 35 years ago. I still hear the same rubbish now from, from some of my uh, industry colleagues and I go, times have changed. And I actually, I actually think it for the better, better working environments, uh, more, more women in the kitchen, more flexible hours, um, and more specialist, you know, like once upon a time you had to do all this work. Like I worked for 10, 15 years to become good, at lots of things, but never was never really coached in the opportunity of being a specialist. Like imagine if I'd learned chocolates for three years and just went off and started a chocolate business, brilliant but you didn't do that whereas now you can learn five flavors of chocolates or muffins cruffins uh, olive oil and you can go and start a business that's the the difference it's it, the industry's full of specialists which i quite like because yeah, i mean we have people who listen to this show
1: and they they're all mostly aspirational people and or the people in business trying to you know fix a problem or get ahead <clears throat> and yeah. someone like you comes on the show and they <laughs> and they think to themselves, well, you know, I, I want to end up like him. Not necessarily in the food industry, but I, I want to end up like him. I want to end up like Gary. And they all think that you probably had a magic moment when you were at school and you thought to yourself, I'm going to go and become a chef and do all the apprenticeship no. and you know, get skilled up. Then I've, got a, then I've got a plan. And then after that plan, I'm going to execute. Then I'm going to be on a TV show. <laughs> and, and I think people think that there's, uh, this, there's this magic road that's sort
0: of set up yeah, no. from day one. It's not the case. No, certainly not for me. I think and, and I think my intentions at the beginning were were purely quite were honorable. I just wanted to be a really good chef. Um, and there's something, there's a great pleasure in that sometimes when it all gets on top of me, i go, gee, you know, in times of stress, human beings tend to retreat and do what they're good at, you know, whether it's in an organization, you know, multinational, whatever, or local or a restaurant, you know, you see the owner running around and clearing tables, Well that's, you know, they've, they're stressed and they do what they're good at, right. Rather than going to do the books and. Making the books balance. So, you know, there's a part of me that still, and actually now I've started uh, reskilling in a sense because I've forgotten lots of things. And I wanted to chalk, of course, when I did a baking course. Uh, I'm planning for something, you know, to do early in the new year because I actually still really enjoy that that uh, sensation of being able to make something. It's a, a what do they call it? It's a uh, it's a mindful. Exercise, you know, that you know, I remember years ago feeling embarrassed about peeling potatoes, but now it's quite a mindful exercise. It's like I I just have the pleasure of being able to put the peeler down when I want. Yeah, we got the choices.
1: (laughs) So, what it's it's, it's been an interesting journey for you. I mean, I I, I guess everybody's going to say, like, he had it easy too, which is the general view is people think that's the case. Just to be clear to anyone who's listening to this. You decided to get your skill base right first. You were inspired yeah. with when you were at E Myth and something else probably would inspired you, but who was it, individual? Was there a mentor? Was there a person that you turned to or you try to emulate after you got your skills up? Was there what was there a moment you thought, I really want to be like that guy or I'm gonna go and talk to that woman or that guy to become like that individual?
0: Yeah. I was looking for one. I, I, I was looking for one, and, and there's a, a Raymond Capaldi, who was my first uh, business partner. He was a chef. I met him at the Sofitel. He was the exec chef. I was the exec sous. We were looking after a team of about 130 chefs, eight restaurants, and so pretty middle management in a sense, um, and he still is one of the best chefs in Australia, but under-recognized, and uh, so he went on from Phoenix to Open Hair and Grace. Um, there's a bit of a story to that. We might touch on that later, but I found him very inspirational because he was my um, – sounds a bit silly but uh that yin and yang thing i'm very measured i'm very uh, stable i think about things i work things out like an engineer um, a bit i suppose But i would have failed miserably um but I, I process things in a particular way where he's very creative uh and very imaginative and so we work well uh together in in at sofitel you know so we turn it around turn the food and beverage up uh, you know, on its head got it away from being that you know what can be a terrible hotel food experience where it's all very average and made it something special. And that's where George Calambaras came out of. So George, who's my, you yeah. know, com, you know, compadre on MasterChef, you know, he was an apprentice. We employed him. Um, and we, we just uh, grew this group of people just driven out of passion and interest and fascination with food. And that was, was a really special time. So I never actually thought of going into business until he left. And then I took over his, a job for, oh, it would have been about 12 months, but in the, in the process, just started planning our business, you know, started putting a business plan together that was based on what we thought the hotels were doing really well, which was having profit centers that, you know, you could count on and others that you could drive for reputation and brand and all the rest of it. Um, and yeah, and, and tried, to <laughs> tried to do the same. And, and, and so that was your first foray into
1: business planning and to becoming a businessman yeah. as opposed to being in yeah. the business of cooking as opposed to being a chef.
0: Yeah, and I kind of thought that I knew what I was doing. I was in I was early 30s, 30, so 31, 32, something like that. And I'd worked a long time. I'd become good at what I did as a chef I was a good I felt a good manager um, and I'd learned a lot about management um, and I'd certainly learn. I felt at the time enough about what made money what didn't and how you know to look at a spreadsheet and be able to identify what was good and what was bad and and adjust um, but certainly going into my first business I really I realized really uh, my what I thought was uh, a good background or a good base w- was not strong enough so there was plenty to learn from that point because
1: <laughs> I, I, I' we're going to go to a break and I'm going to come straight back, but I, I, after, when I come back, I actually want to sort of drill down a little bit because I want to get into <clears> questions <throat> to you because I've often wondered this about people who run businesses like in the food industry. Do you actually have to somehow make provisions for the amount you might waste on a night that doesn't get eaten and you can't you know, have to throw it away? Mm. do you have to actually say, all oh, these ten ingredients cost me a dollar twenty? and I'm selling the item for $5. Yeah. Theref- and then I've got to add my wages in and you work out that there's a profit margin. I actually want to talk to you about some of that gritty stuff. I won't guess we'll make it in a boring sense, but actually very, I'm very <laughs> curious about it, whether people cool. actually sit down and do that stuff. And then I want to ask you, Gary, after we come back, I want to ask you about what have been the challenges and sort of, you know, because people need to have perspective when they listen to these sorts of shows and they hear famous people like you talk. They need to get the perspective of what actually you had to endure to get to where you are today. Yeah. Sure. So we'll go to the break, and we'll be back straight away. Okay, we're back here at the mentor with Gary Meakin, and I'm going to sort of drill down a little bit. You know, we've been having a, a, an interesting conversation to date, today, uh, today, uh, to in terms of Gary's skill base and sort of the processes where he ended up becoming a. In the, someone in the business of cooking or a business of being a chef as opposed to just being a chef. Not that there's anything wrong with just being a chef, but there's a big <laughs> difference between the two. And one of the things oh, yeah. I've always been really curious about is how do restaurants and the proprietors of restaurants work out their pricing regime relative to their costs? And because the costs are all the ingredients, the staff, the rent, every other bloody thing. How do they work <laughs> this stuff out and know that they're going to make a, a profit at the end of the day?
0: Yeah, how it's does a, that work, mate? Right? It's a tough one because, uh, you know, for example, I think the Restauranteurs Association will tell us that the average profitability of most restaurants, cafes, food businesses in Australia is something like 2 or 3%. Don't quote me on that, but it's really damn low. And it it makes you wonder why anybody goes into business in the first place, if they're the kind of margins you're making, you're better off chucking your money in the bank. Um, but I think I think there's a couple of reasons why it happens. I think um, people work very hard in this industry. And I think they're looking, honestly, for that opportunity to work for themselves and choose what direction their life takes them. So I think that there's a promise of that. I think uh, a lot of people think that it's a lifestyle business that, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. And I still hear it now on MasterChef, of course, is that, you know, I've always dreamt of having a little cafe on the coast, you know, and they have this idea <clears throat> maybe that, you know, they're going to be chatting to people like they're their friends, that they're going to be cooking and feeding them like they do with their friends. Um, and of course, that's born out of a space that's purely joyful. Whereas running a business, there's a reality uh, to all that, which is quite <laughs> is quite the opposite. Um, and I think, too, that most of us, uh, like most small businesses, whether you're a fencer, a tiler, a plumber, electrician, or, or a cafe owner um, – start off as a tradesperson first, you know, learn how to make things and, and make things beautifully, make things very well, become very, very good at it, and then jump into running a business. And it's just fraught with danger. I mean, I discovered that, um, you know, we opened Phoenix in 2000 and it was busy as from the day we opened, we were just like, wow, this is incredible. And there were, there were holes in our planning. I mean, we had a terrible restaurant manager at the start. We just employed really badly. We had very little understanding of how, uh, front of house uh, functioned. And what I mean by that is we, of course, I dealt with hundreds of waiters and restaurant managers and managed them in the past in different arenas, but going from under, having to understand how to produce you know, loads of coffee quickly, keeping your customers happy, how to, how to manage a, uh, a beverage stock uh, and make money out of it, how to manage your restaurant staff, which tend to be a lot of casuals. These were all kind of new to me. And simple things like having a great knowledge <clears throat> of of the simplest things like whiskeys in your bar or gins in your bar. You'd walk into the restaurant I go, hey, you know, hey, Mark, how are you going? Table for two? yet yeah, perfect. What can I get you to drink? And you go, what have you got? Like, <laughs> what whiskeys have you got? And all of a sudden I've gone from knowing my kitchen and my menus in a uh, uh, my food menu's brilliantly, but now I've got to remember everything that's in the bar. Do I have Lafrogue? Do I have, you know, Baker's Hill? Do I have... You know what I mean? I've, all of a sudden, I've become... I'm supposed to be an expert, and I bloody should be, and and I wasn't. So we, we had lots of... Uh, <laughs> Lots of interesting days, of, of lots of chaos, of, of very happy customers and some unhappy ones. Um, but what, the happened? Hardest, uh, what happened? What uh, happened? The hardest thing I found is when the flush of that new, the thrill of that new business uh, went away. So let's re- forward, fast forward a year or two where now we've worked. I mean, look, I, I'll be honest with you. And if I can... In terms of people, if they've never opened a restaurant that, that restaurant nearly killed me when Ray and I, when we first started, I reckon in the first three to four months, I, I don't remember driving to work, you know, I'd get to work, sit out the back and just go, how did I get here? You know, I was so tired. I was cashing up at one 30 in the morning after doing a shift that was 16 hours long going home, you know, barely eating properly, uh, trying to grab some sleep and going in and doing it all over again. And just being delirious. I think it was, we were operating in in delirium for, for a few months. Um, and so it was very hard. I think the hardest thing was retaining staff, was remaining focused, was trying to focus on the bigger picture, but being consumed by the detail. And what I mean by that is in in the simplest terms, I've got a sales girl who's got a wedding inquiry because we had a function center upstairs for 200, a wedding inquiry for next November, say it's a $20,000 booking, and I'm peeling potatoes and trying to get ready for lunch uh, and getting angry with the salesperson because can they not see that I'm busy? Yeah. Can you see can you see yeah, the ridiculousness yeah, yeah. Of, of that moment yeah, yeah. of uh, I'm I'm turning a potato that's worth not even a dollar and she's got a $20,000 inquiry for next November and I'm I'm going I'm busy. I'm can you not see? And that's an
1: example of someone working in the business and not on
0: the business. Yeah. So it, was just, it just was very, very hard. And then I think we had a turning point. So that first flush of business started to die off. We weren't the newest thing. We weren't the best thing in town anymore. Other restaurants were opening around us. Um, and now we're in the, what I call, uh, we're in the hard yards. You know, we're in the dip, you know, where we've, we've got to really run this business proper, uh, you know, for real. Uh, and I think at the time, uh, what, we had another business partner, uh, ex-accountant, and he said, "You're still ordering. You know, you're still ordering wine stock. Your restaurant managers buying stuff. You guys are employing, and uh, the numbers aren't stacking up. And it was the we had to sit down, and the harsh reality of working those numbers out properly without you know skim reading a spreadsheet, and realizing that if we continue to operate for another two months the way we were, we were going bust. Uh, and the the reality of that going bust was not just closing the doors, but we'd spent a million bucks back then setting this thing up. So essentially you just, you know, in real terms, not only the million dollars you'd spent, but the debt that you'd then, um, accrued, which was your, the, the staff, wages, superannuation, creditors, in, you know, everybody, you know, now wasn't a million and a half. It, it now wasn't a million. It was a million and a half.
1: Dusted. <clears throat> totally
0: dusted. So, yeah. And so we had to make, and, and I remember, Uh, coming up with this line is probably belongs to someone else is, you know, what, what do we have to do? What we, what we can't afford not to do. So telling your restaurant manager, stop buying wine. And then the restaurant manager, who's a product person saying, yes, but you know, we've got this lovely list and that, you know, Mr. Boris comes in and he likes a particular wine. He loves his, you know, Molly Ducker. Uh, Shiraz from the McLaren Vale and you go, we can't afford it. Don't buy any more. Well, what am I supposed to do? Take it off the list because now we don't have a good balance of Shiraz on the list and realising that this was ru- this was a rubbish conversation but I'm now trying to convince someone that wants to work for me because he's got the freedom to sell the best product and to feel good about that and proud about that. Now I'm stripping the wine list and telling them to knock stuff out because we can't afford to pay the suppliers. And did you? Yeah, yeah, we did. We had to. We just said, and, and it was a turning point. It was a, a turning point and a realisation that this was not easy and that we had to, all of us, be across every single thing in that business. We had to, at that point, uh, sign off on anything that was spent from toilet rolls to cleaning products to... You know the the mo- pencils, the most ridiculous thing. Stop, stop buying. Money in, money out. It's not adding up. And and what we realise too, and what most restaurateurs don't do, and this is the nitty gritty of it, is that they don't know what financial position they are in on a day to day basis. So after lunch, after dinner, at the end of the day, the following morning, did we make money? Money in, money out. What were the invoices? What was the labour cost? What was the beverage cost? What was the food cost, which are all the primary costs in an in F&B business? <clears throat> and at the end of the week, being in a situation uh, or every day being able to make those calls, like saying to your second in command, you've only got $300 to spend on food tomorrow. So here's your, do I, do I need to give you that in cash so you can actually feel it and see it rather than picking up the phone and ringing your fish supplier and your fish suppliers doing his job by saying, yeah, we've got great Trevally, great yeah. whiting, great cod, great this, and you buying like a crazy man and spending 600 bucks. It's, it was a real eye opener. And, and we, we really drilled down into the business side of it, uh, and said, right, we need a. Uh, we need to have a, a roster coster that is basic, most basic kind of title. So we need our restaurant manager and our uh, me, the kitchen manager, to cost your roster for the week, so you knew in advance against revenue what it was going to cost you and whether or not they were your percentages. To have a simple system of being able to enter in your invoices as they as your supplies arrive for the day and adding it up and projecting it across the week. All it would do was just go, what's your projected revenue? Add the costs in. Oh shit! I'm spending too much money. Reign it in. So, do I need to order that extra kilo of something, or shall I keep it tight? Uh, do I come up with a more creative way of using food? Do I get some stock that's not moving on my wine list moving? Do I drop prices? So, really trying to work with what you've got. And it took us about oh, five or six months, uh, and it and it was a turning point. Did it change? Like a- did it change your creative creativeness in the, or, and or the perception oh, of your customers i think it i think it it shifted our attention uh, without a doubt um and possibly we became less creative possibly well most definitely we became more focused on the numbers in the business um but without which and this is where all the restaurant and chef excuses go out the window and i and when people ask me for advice now and i i've got a, a very good friend of mine who many years ago said i can't make any money out of my restaurant can you come in and just to have a look. And I went in and had a look, and I said, look, we're good friends. We've known each other for 15 years. Do do you really want me to tell you? Because I'm not sure I can. Because he was so passionate, just made everything, uh, loved it, you know, too many stuff, too much product, would buy fresh truffles, make his own bread, his own small goods, all this stuff. And he loved it, but he was just losing money. And I said, I don't think you want to hear it, so I'll go away, and in a week's time, if you really want me to come in and tell you, I'll come in and tell you. And I just remember going in and saying, mate, you need to get rid of your restaurant manager. You need to lose a third of your kitchen staff. You need to sell off product that you ain't using. You know, he had about three grand's worth of truffles that he, you know, bought, which are beautiful. And I said, but you, he goes, yeah, but I'm going to sell them. I go, but when are you going to sell them? Today, tomorrow, next week, next month? Because It's too late. You know, and just had that really hard conversation with him. And he goes, and then he just started making excuses, you know, he'd go, yeah, but I can't get rid of my restaurant manager because, and I go, yeah, but is she marketing? Is she, you know, does every customer she comes in, is she picking up a, uh, uh, can I have a business card? You know, what, you know, Mr. Boris, I'd love to, you know, send you some information, collecting data so you can do a mail out, all these basic things. And he said, no, she's not. But if I ask her to do more, she's going to leave. I go, but if, if she leaves... Get another big who and do it yeah. right, but and he was afraid. He was just afraid. He goes, "Yeah, but the customers love her." I go, "But she's costing you money and she's not making you money." You know, so, it was a re- it was a very hard conversation with someone.
1: You built, you um, killed his romance because there's a lot of romance around yeah. running a restaurant. But but I
0: killed, I, I did it to myself. Yeah, yeah. So I figure that I got the experience, and, and believe me, Mark, I'm I'm far from perfect. I'm, I'm I'm making mistakes today that I think are ridiculous. That I go, how come I haven't learned? But it's it's attention in business, uh, you know, and I've had my failures, you know, and I've had my successes. If you're not paying attention, uh, things go wrong, and it, and it creeps so when up I'm, on you. Yeah. And so when things aren't, when I'm not paying attention and things go wrong, I really only have myself to blame. Um, and you know, we, when I had that conversation with my friend, I think he, you know, it took him some time to digest it. And then, you know, he started to realize that he didn't have the pleasure of, as you say, this romance of what he was doing in business for himself, chef in charge of his own destiny, cooking what he wanted to cook and yeah, doing a great job. Customers love what he did, but in reality, You can have a bit, and his restaurant was busy. But in reality, if the restaurant's busy and you're not making any money, uh, somebody told me once, uh, "Business is enterprise for profit," (laughs) which which sometimes chefs feel guilty about saying you know and actually customers sometimes go oh it's all right for you you're making loads of money or look at the car you're driving you go you're serious <laughs> you know aren't we allowed to make a little bit of money or in fact actually it's on a higher purchase it doesn't belong to me
1: <laughs> so 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 like because what you just said something is quite important because that, like it, we, we we all watch tv shows and of course you know you're you've been a <coughs> master chef since day one you, yeah. it's And it's been great for your brand and part of the whole process of a show like master chef is to build for the Audience, which includes chefs, by the way. Yeah, yeah. The romance of food. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of romance there. Yeah. It's also pressure. I mean, you 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 explain well the pressure of what it takes to sort of actually produce the outcome that you guys judge. Yeah. yeah. That part's very good. But um, what everybody's thinking is, oh wow, wouldn't I love to be on MasterChef or be a winner of MasterChef? Wouldn't love to be a judge of MasterChef? Aren't these guys lucky? There's this big romantic thing going around the yeah. food industry. But really, the, the, once you're in the business, like you, you're in the business, the romance is really there. And if you pull back the sheets from how the show gets produced, MasterChef, people probably think, oh, just Gary just walks on the set and, uh, you know, puts a bit of makeup on and uh, judges a few food tastes and has, says a few words, <laughs> when in fact it's not very romantic doing the TV show either. It's a yeah, hard but, job.
0: But don't make it I, – I think, you know, you, you've got to – and George always says it, you know, you got to have the, the bitter with the sweet, Mm. you know, if you really love what you're doing and we love hospitality, you know, we love serving people. We love cooking. There's just a, there's the reality you need to embrace is that if you want to do that forever, then you need to make a buck every day. Whereas if you lose a buck every day, eventually some point, someone's going to come along and go, you can't do this anymore. So it's just an accept. You've just got to accept that. So there's plenty of romance. There's plenty of the, the, the thrill of being able to surround yourself with beautiful things you know wonderful wine wonderful food to be able to travel and and feel part of something like that is lovely it's wonderful and i still enjoy it in fact i probably enjoy it more than i ever have um but then you've just got to be and obviously experience uh, and time builds uh, confidence and experience in business um that you've just gotta you gotta run your business you know and i and i i trained myself haphazardly over the years, but every little bit of training I've done has paid off in some way. Like I went and did some sales training so I could manage my sales girls, because we had three sales girls. So I had to learn the basics of of sales and tie downs, and how to tip that wedding inquiry or function inquiry over over the line. How to compete in a very competitive environment and make your venue, or your restaurant stand out from others. And actually, being a personality on TV wasn't an accident. It was it was just I, you know, in every management book I'd ever read since I opened the business, it said become an expert in your field. You know, uh, write some editorial for free for for local newspapers, which I did. You know, get your get your recipes in printed press, which I did, Uh, get yourself on television, which I I was trying to do because in essence all I was, the the goal was uh, get people to walk into my restaurants.
1: And that's That's what TV is. That's an editorial, just as visual. It's a visual editorial. It's
0: exactly that. And, uh, you know, we we put our hands up for every food festival and foodie thing we could. You know, we're off to the Pyrenees, you know, two and a half hour drive in a a truck full of food uh, to do a food festival that we wouldn't make any money out of. But at least people said, oh, you're those guys. You're at Phoenix. Yeah, we know that. We drive past that all the time. And you go, well, why don't you come in? Oh, I don't know. You know, because there's so much choice, you know, how do you stand out? So that that was really a conscious effort uh, to try and exploit every medium that we could um, to to so that people recognise my name or Ray, Ray Capaldi's name or uh, the restaurant's name um, and make a decision to come in because it's hard, you know, because people are just walking past you all the time going, I know that's a good restaurant, I've heard it's a good restaurant and we'll go. And then... You don't. You've got to give them a call to action. And, and, you, you, exactly. Got to, I, you have to invite them in. So seeing me on TV or hearing me on the radio or reading an article I'd written or going to a food festival you know, in, uh, in the King Valley would give them a reason to become part of my database. Can I grab your details?
1: And maintaining your brand,
0: in. maintaining the Gary Meeker yeah. brand. I mean, I mean,
1: I don't think – don't underestimate what you've done. You've, you've <laughs> done something quite brilliant, and, and there are a number of other people who have done the same thing in Australia, but there might be 10 or 12 of the well, across
0: the lots country. Lots of people have done it much better than I have. I mean, I look at what George has done, and that's a brand. I've always tried to keep my idea – and for most restaurants, they, I think, and for most cafes, it's not about being a brand. I mean, we're not BMW or, you know, Volvo or Samsung – um, the, the business is not that, uh, complicated. Uh, it's very simple, great product, great service, um, building a, uh, a network of loyal customers, get, getting their details, uh, and bring them, bringing them in, collecting that data so that you can send them an invitation to come in or use you again for lots of reasons, you know? So it's not that sexy. Um and I uh, and I. When you say brand, I go. Well, I don't know if I'm a brand. Uh, but you're underselling yourself, mate. No, I know. It, no, no, it's no. you are. It's nice. It's nice now that I'm a master chef, and people just walk past you in the street and go, "Gaz, how are you?" And I go, "Good." And my wife goes, "Who's that?" I go, "No idea." No, but sometimes you always <laughs> got to say hello just in case
1: you do. Know. But a, but
0: a, but apart from being
1: a big brand, apart from being a master chef, and now you have got a plate to call home. That's the podcast yep. on Podcast One. you will just finished something in India. What is that?
0: Yep. Yeah, we filmed. A, I've done a, a couple of independent uh, productions. One was far flung, which is about two, or three years ago, where we set up a little production company to uh, to film me travelling and eating. You know, because I, if I could travel and eat for the rest of my life, that'd be a pretty good gig. Um, and then we actually did a first, our first Indian production because India's got, I think, there's about three and a half million viewers of MasterChef in India. Uh, and I've been about eight, this is my eighth visit. Um, and I do love it. I love the food. I love the craziness and all the rest of it. And then in, in that time, just trying to figure out how can we get into that market? There's lots of business opportunities, but I don't trust them or I don't think I'm ready for them. Um, and you know, exploring, uh, the food and the chefs and the trends was an opportunity I couldn't turn down. So we've just filmed uh, a 12 part, uh, series for Fox life, uh, which is one of their premium, you know, what they call triple A channels. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. What's it I called? Spent, uh, Can you tell it, me? It's a working title at the moment okay. called Masters of Taste. And the reason it's that is because we met some of the best and the youngest kind of creative chefs in India, uh, in Delhi and uh, Mumbai principally, and just kind of getting our fingers in and seeing what they're doing and how close it is to what we're doing because maybe indian food in australia may be the next big thing maybe. really well it's very underrepresented it's very under, you, when you go to india you realize there's no such thing as indian food it's very regional it's a continent so from north to south it's just enormously different and as australian consumers we've never really we haven't even scratched the surface yeah like but got, we no think
1: one... indian food is totally because i used to go to india for, i had a business in india for many years and mm. indian food that i could get in australia i, I didn't really eat to be honest with you. but no. indian food i ate over there i loved
0: it yeah. So if you go to South India, it's all full of coconut cream and lemons and, you know, curry leaves, it's all very light and interesting and single spices, delicious, you know, and actually a lot of what we've got, and quite understandably, it's like Greek foods, like Italian food came with a wave of immigration many years ago. So the Greeks came in the 50s, the, you know, the Indians may have came over in the 70s, you know, with the conflict on the northern borders with Pakistan, right? So we've got a very particular type of food here. And everybody just assumes that Indian food is that 20 dishes, a bit oily. You know, should be cheap, and of course, the opposite is true. And what what's happening in India now, because they've got a burgeoning middle class, is every like everybody around the world in the first world is becoming fascinated by food, and social media is part of that reason, that platform that people aspire for lots of different things and are clicking into. So, food's another one. And I met some amazing young chefs that are just uh, doing local, regional, you know, uh, food that I just, oh God, I thought if you could bring this to Australia, if they brought this to Australia, it'd just boom. And Who that, knows? That,
1: that might be the next uh, craft beer could thing. Could be. Could be.
0: It could be. Well, I met a craft brewer over there actually called uh, Dulally and they, uh, they they imported a German brewer and they now make, I think, about 12 or 14 beers and beers become a big thing in Mumbai, for example. Well, I love the Indian beers, like Kingfisher. Look, you know, I love
1: to, I, I like to talk to you for. I talk we to could, you but we got to wind it up. I we? know we got to wind up. <laughs> we're, all, we're both getting wound up. I know you're getting wound up in the Melbourne Street. I'm getting wound up in the Sydney Street. So, mate, I really appreciate the opportunity for to have someone of your ilk on the show, and for more importantly, for our audience to be able to listen to someone who is experienced and is skilled, and to be honest with as successful, but as also to share with us some of the tough times that you've gone through. I appreciate it. Our audience appreciates it. Um, I want to wish you Merry Christmas too, by the way, because this is our last Thank podcast you. before Christmas. And good luck with everything in in your business life and good luck with everything in your cooking life and good luck with your family, mate.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And we could talk for hours, but maybe next time. You betcha. See <laughs> you. See